Let's go ahead and begin the class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study about you today. We ask that our minds will be open, that the misrepresentations and distortions that have been told by your enemy will be removed from our minds, and that we can experience your presence, your indwelling spirit in our hearts and minds, that we can be changed to be like you. Be with the members of our class who can't be here today, that you will watch over, protect them, and bring them back to us again. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number two in our new quarterly, The Christian Life, and the title for the lesson this week is called Faith. And if somebody would read the first two paragraphs in Sabbath's lesson that begins, Faith is not, please. Faith is not to be confused with rational conviction. Faith in the biblical sense is not to be based primarily on our reason, even though it's not unreasonable or irrational. Nor is it based on our emotions, though emotions do play a role. Faith is indeed assurance that affects the entire person. Faith is a principle that governs the life. Faith is the means by which we reach out and grab hold of the promises of a God we can't see yet, we know is there. Hebrews 11.1 speaks about the substance of our faith. William G. Johnson, an expert on Hebrews, suggests that the best translation is, Faith is the title deed to what we hope for, the certainty of what we do not see. Your thoughts about faith. How would you define faith? A trust in something that you know. A trust in something that you know. Do you like that faith? That, that description. I like that description too. And, and as we as we move on through the lesson, let's 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 compare that description to what we what we read. And let's turn to Sunday's lesson in the third paragraph, which begins now. The question. Somebody read that for us. Now the question is: Have you ever tried to discover where your faith originated? Why is it that you have faith in God and in others you know in, in others you know don't? Was it your upbringing? Did you have believing parents? Have you always attended church? Did your study of the Bible and reading of books about the Bible convince you that there is a God who loves you? Did you find satisfying philosophical arguments that prepared you for the leap of faith? In the final analysis, faith is a miracle, a gift from God. Thoughts about that paragraph? The final analysis, faith is a miracle, a gift of God. What, what do you all think about that? Yes. Indeed, faith is a gift, but he has given us so many evidences upon which to base our trust. You know, it's not this miraculous, hocus-pocus... Does it sound like that in the... It does. The whole lesson. Yeah. I don't like that word, leap. Leap. He doesn't like the, she doesn't like the word leap. Um, yeah, so keep in mind, we're going we're gonna to want to try and disentangle these concepts. How is faith a gift, a, a miracle, yet it's not a leap, it's, it's evidence-based? How do, we, how do we marry these ideas up together and bring harmony? The first paragraph in Sunday's lesson says, a simple definition could read something like this. Faith is a confident and obedient trust in the reality, power, and love of God as revealed in his acts and in his promises to us. Now, I like that very much, but if, if it's revealed in his acts, is that evidence? Would it, when you see God acting in love, and you are won over to trust by his graciousness and kindness and generosity and, and all that you've seen him doing in action, is that a reasonable thing to do? Would your reason be involved in that at all? 
But I, I thought we were suggesting that faith is something that's outside of reason. Hmm. Talks about a miracle of faith. Is the miracle of faith then, if we like paragraph number one, not that God performs some miracle tweaking our neuroanatomy in our brain to instill faith in our, in our synapses, but is the miracle of his self-revelation through history which inspires our faith as we see and know him? What do you, what do you think? Is it, is it God's miraculous interventions through history revealing himself to us in our darkened minds that wins us to trust, or is it that he's doing something in our brains miraculously transforming and rewiring our neural net so that we have faith. If it's a miracle that's initiated by God and we don't have some part to play in our own faith, then why is it some have it and some don't? Does God choose to give a miracle of faith to some and a miracle and not give a miracle of faith to others? If it's a miracle of faith. Initiated by him. Yes. Are we told that all has a certain measure of faith? That's what the scripture says. It says. Yes, yes. Yeah, I like the scripture version better, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Is it possible that all have a perfect measure of faith? What's perfect measure mean? It means that their, the amount of faith that they have is all that they need for that moment. Um, I don't know. I don't know that everybody's faith is, uh, is at that point. I think that there is a, enough faith for, that, for them to continue to grow right. and develop their faith. Hmm. What do you all think? Yes. They've had vaccinations out for years. A lot of people choose not to get vaccinated for one reason or another. And maybe that's a little bit like us choosing to accept it. God's ruling in our hearts. Are there people who have the freedom to choose not to accept faith? Even though there's overwhelming evidence that it could benefit you. Yes. I think we all have faith. It's just what we have faith in. We choose to have faith. Oh, that's a good point. What do we have our faith in? Faith in science, faith in man, faith in ourselves, faith in our friends. Oh, okay. Let's look at Monday's lesson. And the first paragraph, somebody read that. A famous English hymn. Somebody read that for us. A famous English hymn that has been translated in countless languages reminds us, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It is important that we never forget this truth. Jesus Christ is the ultimate foundation and source of our faith. But even though the gift of faith is a mystery that remains beyond our comprehension, we have been given some insights into how faith is awakened and strengthened. That's good. Let's, let's stop right there. What do you think about this sentence? That faith is a mystery that remains beyond our comprehension. No. Hmm. Second paragraph says, clearly the scriptures are of extreme importance, and if we neglect them, it will be at our own peril. But how the scriptures exactly help to awaken and build our faith cannot be expressed in any human formula. Not even the famous faith definition of Hebrews 11 provides this. Hebrews 11.1 does not give us a definition of pistis, P-I-S-T-S, the Greek word for faith, so much as a description of the way faith works. Certainly, the apostle isn't advancing a psychological explanation of faith. Rather, he sets out two cardinal abilities that faith make possible, turning hope into reality and the unseen into sight. And then before we discuss this, I want to look at Friday's lesson, and the question from Friday's lesson, bring all this together to discuss, which is, 
You don't need faith to believe in what you can prove. You need faith to believe in what you can't prove. So, faith is a mystery. As Sun, Sun, Sabbath's lesson said, faith is not based on reason. Um, faith, we don't need faith to believe in what we can prove. We need faith to believe in what we can't prove. Is the definition of faith you're hearing from our lesson tending toward enlightening your mind or darkening it? Sounds like blind faith. Is it leading you down the path of believing without evidence? And then I'm going to ask you a hard question. How is this definition of faith we're hearing in the lesson different from the definition of superstition? And here's the dictionary definition of superstition. I looked it up. This is a quote from the dictionary. Superstition, a belief or notion not based on reason or knowledge, in or of ominous significance of a particular thing, circumstance, occurrence, proceeding, or the like, any blindly accepted belief or notion. <laughs> That's a dictionary definition of superstition. Is genuine Christian faith nothing more than superstition? No. Is genuine, genuine Christian faith believing things that are unreasonable, irrational, without evidence, blindly accepted, without thinking? No. Have we, has Satan successfully gotten Christians to exchange genuine Christian faith for superstition? And then promote it and promote superstition as virtuous. Yes. I took the opportunity of looking up in the Adventist Bible commentary, their dictionary, to find out what their definition of faith was. And I thought it was much better than the definition you just read. A superstition. Right. Yeah, but how did you hear superstition related to what we hear in our quarterly? Very similar. Yeah. Did you bring the definition from the... Yeah. Yes, read that for us. A confidence of heart and mind in God and His ways that leads one to act in accordance with His sovereign will. This faith is not based upon a blind, unintelligent acquiescence, but upon a supreme trust in the ability and integrity of God. We give various texts to support that. Such a faith is a prerequisite for any approach to deity. It is by means of faith but in Christ that one is justified. Do, do you like that definition better? Isn't that a lot better? Man, and that's in our, it's in our commentary. I like that. I wonder why it didn't end up here. So let's press forward with these ideas. And if you have questions or comments, please share them. Yes? One, uh, one question I had was Ephesians 2.8. Um, I'm not sure that the way they translate or the way they used that uh, was correct. Read it for us. Ephesians 2.8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourself, but it is a gift. Yes. And they were referring the gift as the great, I mean, as faith, and not the grace. What do you think it is in this text? Salvation. You have been saved by grace through faith. Through faith. Yeah. So the gift is the gift of salvation. Yes. Through grace. I mean, uh, yeah, by grace through faith. So I, I agree with you. I think that faith is, is not primarily the object of the definition there. Right. I would agree with you. In the lesson they used that faith was the object of those contexts. So as we, as we look at this idea of superstition versus faith, in this war between Christ and Satan, how much truth supports Satan's side of the argument? None. How much truth is on God's side? 
So if you are Satan and you want to prosecute a war for the hearts and minds of intelligent beings, do you want those intelligent beings, knowing you have no truth on your side, do you want those intelligent beings thinking, reasoning, examining evidences, searching for truth, or would you want those people to think that true righteousness comes when we stop thinking, when we stop reasoning, when we stop examining evidence and just blindly believe? Notice where this doctrine comes from. And do you hear it promulgated throughout religious thought of all denominations, all creeds, but in our own church still, it's promulgated that true righteousness comes when you believe without thinking, without reason, without evidence, you blindly accept. Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, test everything, hold to the good. How can we test everything if we don't reason, if we don't think, if we don't weigh evidence? How can you test things if you don't? Should we test our faith? Is that one of the everythings that we should test? Or should we have faith in what we cannot test? Well, if you say, well, yeah, we're supposed to have faith in what we cannot test. Well, in Psalms 34, 8, it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. What is that suggesting we do? I think Deuteronomy 29, 29 talks about what you're saying. There's things the Lord has revealed to us and to our children. There for our edification, there for our searching, for our digging, for our understanding, for our reasoning. Those things he hasn't revealed, you accept in faith. I think that's true. We're going we're gonna to flush this out. Are we all knowing? Are there things that we don't know? Yes. yes. Is our faith based on the stuff we don't know? No, no it's no. based on the stuff we do know. The faith, the faith is based on the stuff we do know. Absolutely. Exactly right. So, the Psalms text, when it says, taste and see that the Lord is good, is that not telling us to test him? Check him out. Engage. Sample of the Lord. Is that not a testing of sorts? In Proverbs 14.15, it says, this is the good news version, a fool will believe anything. Smart people watch their step. The New English Bible of the same verse says, a simple man believes every word he hears. A clever man understands the need for proof. And the Living Bible says, only a simpleton believes everything he's told. A prudent man understands the need for proof. Does that, would that include our, our relationship with God? Does God want to win this war for the hearts and minds of his universe by simply declaring the truth only? When Lucifer began his rebellion in heaven, did God, do you think God stood up and, and gave a declaration of truth? He did, didn't he? Did he then demand that his intelligent beings decide on declarations only? No. No, he created our solar system and the earth and man and woman and the Sabbath as proof. As evidence. He started giving evidence. Notice, um, can you command people by a declaration to love you? Can you? No. Love is achieved through the evidence in a relationship of your love and trust for a person. It awakens love and trust in the heart of the other as it's revealed in interaction over time. If God would have responded with totalitarian power to Lucifer, look, he's a liar and a fraud, which he was. That would have been truth. There is no substance to any allegations he's made against the Son, the Spirit, or myself. We have been nothing but good to you guys. Now, make up your mind, because anybody who follows him at sunset tonight is going to be toast. <laughs> what would have happened in the universe? 
Would love have grown stronger or would a fear grown stronger? And you notice perfect love casts out all fear. Fear is part of the infection. Where fear grows strong, love grows weak. God can't win. This is why it says in Zechariah, not by faith, excuse me, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. God cannot win by might and power. So, is our faith based on claims, proclamations, declarations, or evidences that appeal to our reason? One of the founders of our church wrote the following in Steps to Christ, page 105. God never asks us to believe without giving sufficient evidence upon which to base our faith. His existence, his character, the truthfulness of his word are all established by testimony that appeals to our reason. And this testimony is abundant. Yet God has never removed the possibility of doubt. Our faith must rest on evidence, not demonstration. Those who wish to doubt will have opportunity, while those who really desire to know the truth will find plenty of evidence on which to base their faith. And then, Review and Herald, January 24, 1899. God gives sufficient evidence to every soul. He does not promise to remove every doubt, but he gives a reason for faith. And sufficient evidence was given to the Jews. And then, this one I find particularly interesting. This is Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 56. Faith in a lie, remember somebody said we have faith in something. Okay, Faith in a lie will not have sanctifying influence upon the life or character. No error is truth or can be made truth by repetition or by faith in it. Sincerity will never save a soul from the consequences of believing in error. With, and, and we should talk about why that is. Is God going to say, okay, I'm mad at you, you believe the lie? Or is believing a lie have direct consequence on you? See, without sincerity there is no true religion, but sincerity in a false religion will never save a man. I may be perfectly sincere in following a wrong road, but that will not make it the right road or bring me to the place I wish to reach. The Lord does not want us to have a blind credulity and call that the faith that sanctifies. The truth is the principle that sanctifies, and therefore it becomes us to know what is truth. We must compare spiritual things with spiritual. We must prove all things, but hold fast only to that which is good, that which bears the divine credentials, which lays before us the true motives and principles which would prompt us to action. Is this sounding like we should be thinking, reasoning, examining evidences, testing things, or should we have this like non-reasoning, blind, non-thinking, non-questioning faith? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. My preacher said it, I believe it, that settles it. <laughs> she said, my preacher said it, I believe it, that settles it. Another thing, Tim, is that, you, that it said in there that just because it's repeated over and over, a lie doesn't become truth. And it's true that no matter how many people believe a lie doesn't make it truth, just because there are millions who do. We've got lessons in society right now, if you've got your eyes open what's happening in our own country about the number of people believing certain things promulgated from powerful preachers or speakers and how they believe it and believe it and hope for it and desperately want it to be true and prepare because we know as what we believe is, as events unfold in the future there's going to be the mass of humanity is going to believe certain things but it doesn't make it true and if we don't learn how to move away from this definition of faith to developing that mature mind that can discern the right from the wrong based on evidence, we're going to be sucked in with the masses. That's all I hand somewhere. Yes? I was just going to say, we have great caution with popular opinion polls. 
Popular opinion polls, yes. Be cautious about those. So, have you heard certain things? You know, while, while re- repetition in an error doesn't make it true, what will repetition in an error do over time? You'll if you repeat it enough, what does it do? You'll accept it as true. You'll accept it as true. Some people, if you repeat it lo- frequently enough, also loudly enough, I know sometimes when you challenge people's concepts and they don't have evidence to be able to come back and show the underpinnings and the reasons for it, they repeat the same thing louder. <laughs> have you ever seen that? Yeah. <laughs> or angrier. Louder and angrier. More, more emphatically. Okay? As if that will make it true. You can convince yourself of anything, you know, of any lie. If you're just thinking about it long enough, you can convince yourself that it's the truth. There's no question of that. Jeremiah 17, the human heart is deceitful above all things, utterly wicked, who can know it? And we see this all the time. I see it in my practice in human relationships. People are involved with someone who is clearly dysfunctional, destructive, damaging, maybe maybe physically abusive, verbally abusive, exploitive, uh, controlling. I mean, the evidences are not even close that this person you're involved with does not love you. They dominate, control, abuse, mistreat you. Yet the person, many of the patients I have, will twist all that evidence to create the fantasy they want to believe and they want to believe they're loved. I, but but I, he wouldn't hit me if he didn't love me. Because they so desperately want to believe they're loved, and they don't want to face the truth that they're not loved by this person. That's painful. And so to avoid certain types of emotional pain will create lies. People who commit perpetrate sin, I have patients who are molested by their parents, and many of those patients at some point say, I just wish my mom and dad would accept, would acknowledge what they did. Well, imagine if you molested your own kid. To acknowledge that, what would you have to go through? She said, hell. Well, there's truth in what she said. That's right. You would go through a a process of mental pain, suffering, anguish, heart torment, self-loathing, self-disgust, guilt, to the point that you would want to die, which would bring you to repentance and receive a new heart and right spirit. But it would be an awful thing to go through, wouldn't it? And so what do people do when they perpetrated evil upon another? They create lies in their mind to hide behind. I didn't do anything wrong. I was just disciplining. That's what they needed. It was best for them at the time. Okay, we twist reality to hide, to avoid the pain. Yes, we can lie to ourselves, and we do it all the time. And, and the truism I've said in here before, you can never avoid the truth. You can only delay the day you deal with it. If you deal with it today, you deal with it under the umbrella of God's grace, and there is always healing, regeneration, restoration, and recreation of heart and mind today. But if you do not delay long enough, there will come a day when you're so solidified in the lies that there's no redeeming truth that will have any impact on you, and you will face the truth when you come face to face with the source of all truth, and your lies will no longer work, and that day will be a day of anguish, not inflicted externally upon you, but because your lies no longer protect you from the own pain of your own conscience and your own mind that you've been hiding from your whole life. And it will, be, it will be, as you said, hell. So, what is the problem with the idea that faith is believing sincerely in something without evidence and doesn't make sense? What is the problem with that? If you do that, what happens? What's the danger here? Even if you're believing the truth. How about somebody believes the truth about the Seventh-day Sabbath without evidence, blindly, without understanding? What's the danger? 
And if I just accept something that's told to me, even if it's true, and don't look into it, then that's a habit that will affect me later. Okay, number one, she's saying we, we develop habits of a weak mind. Habits of accepting things without evidence, and, and we will accept other things down the road that may not be true because we don't know, have the ability to, to weigh it out for ourselves and come to our own conclusion. So I like that. It's a damaging effect on the mind, number one. What else, though? Was there a group of people 2,000 years ago who accepted the right day of the week as the Sabbath, but maybe didn't really think through the reasons why? They just blindly obeyed. And when Christ came, they wanted him off the cross by sunset so they could keep the Sabbath of the God they just killed. What are we learning? Blind obedience results in rebellion. Non-thinking, blind obedience. Not only does it make us weak-minded, it results in rebellion. This is out of Christ's Object Lessons, page 97. It says, The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he is required to do so will never enter the joy of obedience. He does not obey. When the requirements of God are counted as a burden because they cut across human inclinations, we may know that life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. It springs from love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. And then this is out of Signs of the Times, July 22, 1897. It says, A sullen submission to the will of the Father will develop the character of a rebel. By such a one, service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully in in the love of God. It is mere mechanical performance. If he dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any moment in bitter murmurings and complaints. Such service brings no peace or quietude to the soul. What happens when we obey blindly without understanding reasons for it? Because we know that God is powerful and he's told us to do it. It develops the mind of a rebel. What is it that leads us to sullen submission or keeping God's commands from mere obligation? What would lead a person to obey for that reason? Fear. Fear Fear of? If they don't, what would happen? Fear of punishment from? From God. So it goes back to our... See, when we talk about faith and our belief, does Satan and the devils believe in God? Yes. Do they believe he's the creator God? Have you ever heard an allegation from the devil anywhere in recorded, inspired record that that the devil alleged that God did not create? No. No. He always acknowledges he's the powerful creator. There's never a question who has the power, who creates. What was the question? Can you trust the one with the power? See, how would you like to have an Adolf Hitler, uh, Joseph Stalin, with the power of God? This is the allegation that God has power, but he's like Hitler. And he'll destroy if you step out of line. He rewards those who do right, and he destroys those who do wrong. Um, Does the man who understands, who has investigated the evidence, whose mind comprehends the truth... Obey from a sullen submission. Think about your own life experience. And I've used this example before, but it's one we all can relate to. We were all as children taught by our parents to brush our teeth. Now, if we never had any reasons, it was just a rule you had to obey. We never comprehended any rational understanding of, of dental hygiene behind it. It was just something we were taught to do, and we do it because, well, we're afraid of punishment if we don't. Over the course of time, what happens in our heart? If we never come to understand the reason, 
We're either going to rebel and stop doing it, so we become that rebel. And if we don't rebel and stop doing it, we keep doing it, we have resentment built in the heart, don't we? Feeling this obligation. But when we come to understand why mom gave us the rule or dad gave us the rule, do we not only keep doing it, but do we have greater appreciation for them? Does understanding undermine your faith? Or do you say, wow, I even trust my mom more? As we understand the reasons. So are there any examples in history that you can think of where groups of people have obeyed without evidence? And what happens when that happens? I gave the example of the Jews in Christ's day. Jonestown, she said. Anybody remember Jonestown? Jim Jones down in Guyana where 500 and some people drank the cyanide Kool-Aid? Waco. Waco. Branch Davidians obeying without evidence, without reason. They had faith. Didn't those people have faith? How about flying airplanes into buildings? They're going to get those, you know, that passport straight into paradise. Yeah. Faith that couldn't be moved. And they had faith that was unshakable faith. Family members begging and pleading with them, but their faith was so strong it couldn't be moved. So back to this point of proving your faith. Can you prove to somebody else that you, you have a trustworthy mother or a spouse that loves you? Can you prove it to somebody else? You can tell them your story. But can you prove that you have a trustworthy mother or a spouse that loves you? Can you, can you know that you have a trustworthy mother and a spouse that loves you? Yes. How do you know? Experience. Experience. Somebody expound on that. How? How do you know? Evidence uses words, but how do you know? By what they do for us each day or each hour of the day or whatever time. So is your knowledge, is your certainty, your knowledge of, of their, your trust in them, your faith in them, based on claims and proclamations, or is it evidence-based, even though you may not be able to prove it to another person? Still evidence-based. Recognize that. We may not be able to prove to some non-believer that God exists or he, lo- or he loves us, but that doesn't mean we don't have evidence upon which to base our faith and certainty. We do. If a stranger came up to you in the mall and said... I want you to come with me. No questions. Just follow me. Have faith. You can trust me. Would you go? How about if the, if the guy said, hey, I'm a, I'm a pastor of the local church, or I'm a priest of the local uh, temple, um, and you can trust me. I represent God, and God wants you to believe and have faith. Would you go? Well, how many are following people like this with their souls, with their eternal beliefs? Hey, I'm here representing the Lord. I have the word of the Lord. Just believe. Just trust. Don't examine. Don't ask questions. Just have faith and follow me. How many are doing this? Yeah. Oh, yes. There's a show on ABC. I don't know if anybody's caught it. Called, what would you do? And they've got certain situations. And one of them that I just see recently was where a security a person, an actor playing a security officer or a bounty hunter were pulling people off the, in the, in the, in the storefronts and saying, go into the store and go get this baby. And he kicked out a baby. They would do it without evidence. He'd show up a fake badge and they would do it. Think about that. Now, you know, I, I, this reminds me of another one done, I think it was uh, one of those 60 Minutes or one of those types of magazines. I'm not sure which one, but they, where they uh, were showing parents how 
untrustworthy their children were, not because children were evil, but because children were not mature. And they, and they, parents, they would talk to parents. Have you told your children never to go away with strangers, to, to never follow strangers? Oh, absolutely. Do you, you trust your child not to do that? Absolutely. So they'd take these five, six, and seven-year-olds, and they'd put them out in a, in a playground. And then the parents would sit, like, in a, a van with a TV monitoring thing, and they would all watch, okay? And they would have somebody from the TV company come along with a leash in their hand, going, Fluffy, fluffy, whistling for their dog and looking around the park for their dog. And they would look to the little child. Have you seen a little white poodle around here, my little dog? Uh, would you help me find it? And every one of the kids walked off with them. <laughs> every one of the kids walked off. Now, do you think those kids thought they were disobeying their mom and dad? No. No. See, I understand people doing that when we have certain immaturity level. Why would adults be doing what he said? Did you hear that? Not thinking for themselves. They have been conditioned through our society, through our educational system, through maybe their church system, that we should just have faith. Have faith blindly. Faith in authority. Faith in the government. Yes, that's we, we trust our federal government, don't we? <laughs> Blind faith without thinking, and we just follow along. This is dangerous. Yes. This morning, I received an email from a certain African country offered me $25 million if I would just respond to them. I got that same email. I get it pretty regularly. <laughs> I just keep delete, delete. <laughs> yes. You know, you talk about evidence-based. Uh, a few years ago, when another physician and I were having a radio program out in Denver, a lady called in and wanted to talk about the book, The Da Vinci Code. So she said, why do you believe the Bible is a good book to read, and the Da Vinci Code isn't. Well, I hadn't even said that, but somebody else had on the program. And it was live, and so we were all thinking. You know, we had a little panel, what should we say? And finally we thought, uh, I said to her, she called back later to talk again, I said, the only thing I can tell you is if you read the Da Vinci Code, it does it change lives. I've seen evidence that the Bible does change lives. And it's amazing. The lady had never thought for herself. She had never thought through that. She called back again and said, you know, I never thought about that. Because she had read the Da Vinci Code, and she was down on the Bible, and she said, why do you think that's a good book to read? By the lives that it's changed, is the evidence. Which is amazing. I guess the Da Vinci Code could change a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not for the better. But... but- I like what Russell's saying, and I like what you said, because it's actually moving us the path of looking at evidence to compare the two, and that's the right path to go. But the first thing that popped into my mind when you said the Bible changes lives is I thought of all those Christians in the Dark Ages that went around torturing and, and putting people to burn at the stake based on and all the wars and all the things that have been done based on the, on the Bible. And uh, not the right understanding of the Bible, to be sure, but they've used it to justify, and right now in our society, are there groups today using God's word to justify electing certain officials, getting judges in certain offices, passing certain laws? I mean, they're using God's word, thinking they're following what God would have them do, changing lives. So it's not just, and so I'm I'm not diminishing what you said. But it's still, even with the Bible, requires that we examine the evidence of the Scriptures and come to the right conclusion. Well, the change has to have an evidence. What is the evidence of that change? What, which way does it change it? Yeah, yes, yes. I find problematic the issue, we're discussing the two pillars of faith, the reasoning process and the evidence. And we've already discussed the fact that you can take the same set of evidence and you can apply different approaches to that evidence and come to different conclusions. But we've also talked about the idea of reasoning. It seems like in our society, that in the world society, there are different individuals that are telling us how to reason 
And so you, our reasoning, going through the reasoning process, using the understanding process, the evolutionists will take you one down one path using reasoning, creation's death, another path using reasoning. So where everybody's using reasoning, but the process of reasoning is different. And when I hear, when you, since you brought up evolution and creation, um, I've done a lot of study and research and thought about that. And one of the things I've found that there's a tendency on the creationist Christian side of the thinking is the reasoning process goes something like this. Often, not always, but often, it goes something like this. We have faith, so we don't need evidence. That's how it's reasoned through. In fact, uh, as maybe we go through the lesson, we'll come back to that. So I, you're reasoning, but, but they've got an idea, a concept, a construct that is actually unhealthy to start with. A base premise that, that leads the reason down an unhealthy track. I guess my point is, is there something more than the two pillars we brought up, other than just the evidence itself, other than just the reasoning itself, on which we have faith? I would suggest that experience is that component that's missing in the first two, to be able to have a foundation of what we call faith. Okay, and, and that's why we, we gave the examples a moment ago of, of evidence about trusting your mother or, or a spouse who loves you. And, and, and that would have been the experience piece that we didn't actually say the word experience, but that's what we were like expounding on. So you're right. I'm glad you brought that out because that experience piece, when you have experience with somebody who is loving, who is trustworthy, you can then reason through that as well. And, and then that only confirms that your experience is correct. So, yeah, the experience piece is essential. Yeah, there's no question about it. Does God come to us with claims or does he come to us with evidence of who he is and ask us to get to know him? I had, a, I had a patient who, whose friends were telling her, look, your problem is you don't have Christ in your life. They were all Christians. She wasn't a Christian. You need to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And they were constantly encouraging her in this direction. And she said to me one day in session, Dr. Jennings, I just can't do it. And she knew I was a Christian. And I said to her, of course you can't. And she was like, what? She expecting me to say, well, it's what you need to do. I said, and I gave her the example. If a stranger came up to you in the mall and asked for your keys to your car and the keys to your house, would you give them to him? She said, no way. I said, if you can't give the keys of your car and the keys of your house to a stranger, how do you expect to give the keys of your life to a stranger? You see, life eternal is knowing God. I said, spend time with him. Get to know him. And then determine, based on your experience with him, whether you can trust him. And that made all the difference for her. Because they were asking her for this blind trust in someone she had no knowledge of. And she couldn't do it. None of us can. Anybody who says they can, they're lying. You can't trust somebody you don't know and you have no knowledge of. Has anybody seen the movie The Miracle Worker? It's about Helen Keller. Now let's think about Helen Keller for a minute. She was deaf, dumb, and blind, and she lived in a very dark world. Would you all agree? And she was wild and out of control. Her life was chaos. And here comes Annie Sullivan. Annie Sullivan was the one who... They, the miracle worker. And she began to discipline Helen. Why? Was she angry and hated and was upset at the wild, out-of-control, dark mind of Helen? Did she want to torture her and make her pay for her constant unruliness? Then why was Annie disciplining her? In love. In love for what purpose? Did Annie want from Helen blind obedience? No. <laughs> <laughs> trick, trick. <laughs> or did Annie want to enlighten Helen? 
to get her out of darkness and open the world to her. Think it through. She may have needed to start with obedience. But for the purpose of darkening and, and continuing her. Yeah. Did Helen come to love and trust Annie? Yes. Why? She had the evidence. What did she experience from Annie? Love. Love, discipline, interest in her true welfare, leading her mind, opening her mind, opening the world to her. What did she experience? What did, what did Helen experience from her own mother? Did her own, did her own mother actually hate Helen in her heart? No. no. She indulged her whatever she did. Yeah, she's deaf, dumb, and blind. Leave her alone. You see? So what do you say about preachers or messages who say that God doesn't want to enlighten us. He doesn't want our understanding. He doesn't want us to think or reason or comprehend. He merely wants us to obey blindly. It's wrong. They don't know God. They don't know God at all. That's exactly right. You can be no, you can be sure they don't know God. If Annie approached Helen with only punishment, punishment comes from the root word punitive, means to exact vengeance. Discipline comes from the root word disciple, means to teach or to enlighten. You see, she was never punished by Annie. Uh, she was disciplined to enlighten, to teach. Okay? If, if Annie would approach Helen, though, with punishment, threats, pain, intimidation, without enlightenment, do you think she could eventually gotten Helen to obey? Oh, I think so. She could have gotten her to obey. As long as she was with her, as long as she understood that there was that the, the the hammer ready ready to fall if she didn't obey, as long as she felt she was constantly being watched, she would have obeyed to avoid the pain that you could afflict. Don't you think? Yes. And this would be the obedience of a well-trained dog, the obedience of a dumb animal, the obedience of a slave. Is that what God wants from his intelligent creatures? Did the discipline in love, enlightening her mind, opening her mind, lead Helen to actually become obedient? Yes. But was it an obedience of love? Is there a difference in the type of obedience? Yeah, teachings would suggest that God wants blind obedience, I'm going to say, are from the enemy of souls. They are designed to keep us in darkness and to destroy love in our hearts. That kind of teaching is what it does. If we have scientific explanations and understanding, does that undermine our faith? After last week's lesson, for those who were last week, I received feedback from some who were very troubled by the idea that God, um, that what God does can, over, be over time, like I used the example of Jesus walking on the water, that there's a scientific explanation for that. We just can't comprehend all the physics behind it. But God was not doing this in violation of the laws that he created. But there's some way he was able to work within the laws of nature that he was able to walk on water. String theory, um, whatever it might be, we just can't comprehend it. Some were very troubled by that and wrote back to me that, that they were not comfortable with this idea that, that over time, through eternity, in the future, in the new heaven and earth, we might come to understand the actual workings of how God does these things. They fear that such would undermine our faith, that we need to have this certain mystery, this certain non-understanding in order to have faith in God. Well, let me ask you some questions. Our church received a health message, a message about healthful living 140 years ago. It was radical for its day. Science at the time could not provide any evidence 
to explain the physiological reasons to move away from meat to plant diets, to open the windows and breathe fresh air, to exercise, to use fresh water, to, to avoid stimulants and alcohol and tobacco. Science really couldn't give any, any evidence for any of this. Today we can. Now we are discovering all the physiological reasons why this message was correct. As you come to see the science behind it, does that undermine your faith or strengthen it? Strengthens it, doesn't it? Yes. And what is your faith strengthened in? The health message or God who gave the message? Notice, our faith is not in the message. Our faith is in God. And so, throughout eternity, can't you see that as we come to understand more and more of how God actually does things, and we see that His counsels, before we understood, were always right, that our understanding only makes us more appreciative and strengthens our faith in God. Does anybody have a problem with that idea? So we always have to be thinking about our decisions, but we might not understand everything at the beginning. Absolutely. See, uh, the, the, even, back, even back in 140 years ago, was the faith in the health message or the faith in God? And, and so even though they, they practiced the health message, people did, without understanding the science behind it, did, and so they didn't have the science evidence as to why they were doing it, did they still have evidence at the time that God was trustworthy? Yes. yes. See, our faith is always in God, but then when we get the science evidence as to why he told us, that only adds more evidence to our trust in God. Yeah, so there are things we may do in faith that we don't fully understand, but we should never, in my opinion, have faith in God without understanding our, our, the evidence for our faith in Him. Does that make sense? Shouldn't our faith in Him be based on evidence of who He is, what He's done, the life, death, resurrection of Christ? I mean, isn't this all evidence? It seems like sometimes people don't want to have evidence just because it requires you to be willing to go a different direction than what the herd is going. You know, I mean, truth will lead you against the flow a lot of times. And that's hard to go in a different direction. Truth does lead against the flow. And if we have developed this need that we don't, we don't know how to think and reason, we don't know how to find the truth, we need a, a, a body of other people around us to tell us, I mean, we've got an idea, we think this is the right way to go, but before we can, we can actually base our sense of confidence on the truth itself and the evidence itself, we need those people that we value in the community to affirm that we've got the right decision first. And there are lots of people who go through life this way. They, they don't have the ability to have confidence in the evidence and stand on the truth and evidence. They need others to affirm that evidence. And if it's not affirmed, well, then they will walk away from the truth. Yes? Is there a role for doubt? A role for doubt? Uh, can you expand the question? Well, one of the questions in, on Thursday's lesson was, there's a lot of people that say, you know, think they're... Believe in, uh, I believe in Jesus, believe in the teaching, and sometimes I can't help but struggle with doubt. Is there a role for doubt when you have faith, you have enough evidence? It depends on what you're doubting. I don't think there's a place for doubt in the goodness of God or His existence. Once we have, once we have, I mean, before we've examined any evidence, of course, but I think that God has provided overwhelming evidence to remove all doubt about His existence and about His reliability and about His trustworthiness and about His character of love. I think we can establish our confidence in those, those, you know, foundational points without doubt. Now, the, the secondary questions come, now that I recognize God, trust Him, know Him, I'm confident in Him, 
I might have doubt on what he, what the, what, jo- what direction he would lead me in my life. Do I, do I, do I want to go and, and take this job here? Is God leading me in that direction? Is he calling me for this mission? There can be a struggle to, of uncertainty for a period of time trying to discover where exactly God is lead- leading. Also, people who have illness. And, and we should talk about that, the, the question of miracles. I have many patients who don't doubt God's existence, don't doubt his goodness, don't doubt his love, but they doubt whether he will heal them. Not whether he can heal them. They don't doubt whether he can. They doubt whether he will. Is that doubt a lack of faith in God, or is just saying, I don't know which is in God's providence is the best future outcome for me in my position? That's not doubting God. It's doubting. It's basically saying, I don't know which is going to be best. I trust him, but I doubt which one is going to be the best. I know what I want, but I don't know which is actually going to be best in the circumstance. Which takes more faith? Great question. When miracles are performed, are they generally performed for the strong in faith or for the weak in faith? Weak in faith. When Gideon asked for the fleece, did he ask for the fleece because his faith in what God had called him to do was strong, or his faith was weak and needed some affirming? When Elijah called fire down from heaven, was the miracle for Elijah, or was the miracle for all those people watching who are weak in faith? See, Elijah was a man strong in faith, but that's not why the miracle was sent. It wasn't for Elijah. It was for the people. When Jesus performed all the miracles he performed, were those miracles for Jesus? Or were they for all these people who needed affirmation, confirmation, and evidence? Yes, as our faith grows. Now look at Job, a man strong in faith. He lost ten children, wealth, health. No miracle came to save him from this disaster. Eventually, in the end, he was rescued. But for a long period of time, there was no miraculous intervention. Look at the twelve apostles. All but John died in a martyr's death without miraculous intervention. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were miraculously saved. But was that miracle for their sake primarily? Or was it to reach a man weak in faith, Nebuchadnezzar? And if you read the context of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they actually say to Nebuchadnezzar, we know our God can deliver us from your hand, O Nebuchadnezzar. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow. What are they saying? That they had faith to go either way. They trusted God with whichever way is going to work best. We know God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, it doesn't shake our faith. Okay, that. Now, they, they could have actually, they had no doubt in God. But that expression suggests maybe they doubted which God was going to do. Whether he was going to intervene or wasn't, but they didn't doubt him. And so that kind of doubt isn't a doubt in our relationship with him, but is basically saying, I don't know which course God is going to take. But whichever one he takes, I know it's going to be the best. Yes? You you touched on Tuesday's lesson as far as um, miracles and healing based on faith. If God were to heal someone who did not have faith, he would actually be going against their will. I'd like to discuss that a little further, because I, I, I think there's interesting insights there, because I have patients who have no desire to actually live healthfully. Alcoholic patients who have destroyed their liver, but they would love a miracle to heal them so they could drink another 10 years before they die. <laughs> they would. They would absolutely love, it would be within their will to be physically healthy so they could drink more. But they don't want to have a change of heart, and they don't want to give up their drinking. They would still kill themselves if they were made somehow, gave them brand new organs, organ transplant, brand new organs. They would just drink those into self-destruction too. But they are choosing something in their freedom to do something. 
and in healing them, you are going against what they are choosing to do. But there were many people that were healed that did not have faith. Peter, Paul, people came into town. Christ came into the whole cities were healed. And so the ten lepers, one came back, one had faith. Many people that were healed that did not have faith. So Christ sometimes heals a group of people. But I like to go back one thing, and I'll, and I'll be quiet because I know your time is short. But for some people that are doubting, I would like to challenge them that if, when their faith is weak, where the Bible says in Matthew, where two or three are gathered together, if there's two other people that have strong faith, and this person does not as a doubting, their faith will be a substitute for these weak individuals at that time. If they will gather the two or three, their faith will be made strong. They may not have the faith it takes. The two or three that are gathered together with them will. That is a crucial point in our faith relationship. Sometimes you have a weak brother. Gather together with those people that are strong, and their faith will carry you through at the time you die. And, and we talking about the encouragement. We can encourage people, and through uh, our example, will spark faith or, or uh, in a person who is all left alone doubting. So I think that's a great point. A couple things in closing. Um, in the Tuesday's lesson, it makes the statement from Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please God. I, I want to share with you why that is. Why is it impossible to please God without faith? Um, some would say, say because we, you know, without faith we don't really obey and God wants obedience and all this other stuff. Um, well, what is it that actually pleases God? What, what makes him happy is the health, happiness, well-being, and eternal life of his children. That's what brings him joy. And is it possible for our, his sinful children to be restored, healed, recreated, regenerated, and have eternal life without faith? No, this is why we can't please him without faith, because we will die. We will not experience his grace, his regeneration, be restored without faith in him. That's why we can't please him without faith. It's not a system of, if we don't have faith, we can't do the right works. It's without faith, we can't experience the right healing and regeneration, and God will, God's heart will break as we're lost. It says in Thursday's lesson, there's a great quote in the first paragraph, take time to read it, about our doctrines have as their primary purpose to enlighten us about God. That is exactly right. The purpose of doctrine is to tell us about God. And a test, as we close, uh, the test that we can test our doctrines with, a couple of questions you can ask that help determine whether our doctrines are reasonable and healthy, are one, what does this doctrine say about God? Ask that question. I believe that God will burn the wicked in hell forever. What does that doctrine say about God? I believe that God will perform a miracle to keep some alive for days, uh, making sure they torture and suffer in the appropriate amount that they deserve before he kills them. What does that say about God? If I believe that, what kind of a being would that be? So that's a question you can ask. And then, Jesus is the exact representation of the Father, Hebrews 1.3. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Any doctrine which results in a disparity between the two where they're not alike anymore. They're somehow different. The Father is a stern, arbitrary judge who will exact vengeance upon us. The Son is pleading his blood to the Father. Please be gracious and forgiving Father. I died for them and I love them. Any doctrine that creates a disparity between the Godhead, you can be sure, is a lie. Because they're the same. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. And then if we had time, we'd go through the, the laws of love and the laws of liberty, these constants that emanate from God's character that life is designed to operate upon, also things you can test your doctrines upon. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not asked us for blind, ignorant servitude. But you have created us in your image with the ability to think and to reason and to make decisions. And you are calling us back to be your children who reveal you, which are enlightened children, thinking children, loving children. And we ask that the lies and the distortions be removed from our mind, that we can go out of here uh, with sharp minds, understanding the truth about you, loving others more than ourselves, and revealing you in this dark world. We pray in your holy name. Amen.